Welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. I'm your host, Richard Dugan, and I thank you so much for joining us on the radio broadcast at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. on a Sunday and Monday mornings at 1 a.m. The broadcast podcasts are available on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, as well as richarddugan.com, the homepage, as well as the radio shows page. And we encourage you, if you can, to support us financially to keep the programs moving forward and take care of all of the ancillary things through PayPal and Patreon accounts. They are for your security as well as ours. We hope that you will do your part and do what you can if you feel led to do so. We'll even take energetic support as well. And we also encourage you to go to our guest's website. We'll be giving you that during the interview so that you can continue your evolutionary process. We also encourage you to uh, spend time in meditation, in prayer, in just quiet time during 2020, the year of perfect vision, and the 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. And we hope that you will do that. Listen to that still small voice, that divine self, your higher self, and follow the promptings. And find that still, small, quiet, peaceful place where you can just relax and get a hold of what's really important in your life. We encourage you to do that. And we also encourage you to stay tuned to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. Today's guest, I think you are going to really enjoy here on Tell Me Your Story because uh, it's, some, it's, it's a, a subject, I think, that Many of us have been concerned about, but maybe not really aware of why we've been concerned. As a kid growing up, I was afraid, but now as an adult, whenever I have this experience, I say, hello, who am I talking to? I'm talking to the bees. I am talking to uh, those creatures who basically uh, pollinate, I don't know what the percentage is, our guest may, um, maybe it's 90, 99% of our food. And without them, we, I don't know what we would do. We'd be eating dirt, which not necessarily is a bad thing because there's lots of good stuff in the dirt as well. But we're talking about honeybees. We're talking about a book and our guest who is a returning guest to the program all the way from Ireland. I wish I was there with you right now. The book is entitled A Monk in the Beehive. It's a, it's a short discourse on bees, monks, and sacred geometry. And I have to say that I remember the first time I heard about sacred ge geometry, ironically, was back in the 80s when I was working for a Christian radio station. And I thought, sacred geometry? Christianity? How do those mix? Sky Ann Lewis Taylor's my guest. You're returning from, uh, uh, you're returning to our program all the way from Ireland. Thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you what a joy it is. Even though this is remotely, I am, I am living osmosisly through you there on the Emerald Isle. You are welcome here on the Emerald Isle, Richard. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be with you. Well, you be careful. We may take you up on that. <laughs> we may bring our whole menagerie. <laughs> You'd be welcome. Along with the bees. Um, as I was saying, when a, as a kid growing up, being legally blind, I couldn't see as well as most. And so when there were flying things, buzzing things around me, you know, I would get scared. Now, I can't remember ever being stung, 
by a bee, honey or otherwise, or a wasp or any of these other flying insects that, that have the stingers. But now today we have this enormous uh, flowing, I don't even know what to call it, pl plant or tree or bush or shrub that is as tall as the house. And it's draping over the top of the awning uh, to the entrance to the house. And it has these wonderful clusters of pollen and so forth that have, have popped out. And the thing during the day is literally buzzing. I mean, mm -hmm. it's like it has a sound of its own. But of course, I know it's the bees. It's the honeybees. Yeah. And I see them flying around. And of course, I'm very careful not to bump We've got some limbs that are hanging in our pathway, so I may have to trim those, but I have to do that at night so as not to disturb the bees. They're buzzing around. I say, hello. Hey, it's great for you. I'm glad you're here. I am so, it's so great to hear your voice because yes. I know the role they play. From your perspective, and, and I know that the weather in Ireland can be rather fierce at times, mm -hmm. but when it's gorgeous and green and blue skies and maybe a light breeze and it's maybe warm maybe cool you're the bees are out i'm sure in numbers how has the bee population been doing in ireland uh, since we started hearing i don't know what a decade or more ago about the beehive collapse something along those lines colony collapse colony collapse yes that came in in the winter of 2006, 2007. Wow. Devastated, um, devastated the, the honeybee industry. And there's a distinction between the honeybee industry and the care of bees more naturally. Mm -hmm. So the industry kind of collapsed and in that period of time. This was in America, particularly. I've only been in Ireland a couple of years, but what I've noticed in, in, I live on the end of a farm road, very close to the beach, um, on the sort of rugged coast of Southwest Ireland. And um, almost all the bees that I see, and I've built, I've created a garden here, and it's full of bees, but they're not honeybees. Oh, they're wild bees. I'm sorry, say and again. They're, they're what kind of bee? What we would call wild bees. Okay. In the sense that they don't cluster in a hive. They don't um, make honeycomb. They don't produce honey that people can then take. Um, they, they live very independent lives, solitary. Sometimes they can um, build nests underground and in various places. And there are, I think, many, many kinds of wild bees. They seem to be doing really, really well here. But I have very rarely seen honeybees come around. And they need different um, flowering things, like your plant over your house is obviously in full flower and has probably thousands of offerings to make to honeybees. And honeybees are unusual in that they will only go to one flowering type at a time. They don't go from your tree to the next tree, unless it's the same type of flower. Mm -hmm. They won't go from, you know, uh, 
a heather to a, a furze plant. They won't go from one plant to another. The wild bees will. They'll just see what's available right now. And just like a hummingbird, they'll go and have a little sip here and then another sip there. And then they'll come back 20 minutes later and that cup will be full and they'll drink again. But honeybees are monocrop oriented. Just for the day, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But the bees, any individual bee within a bee colony will not go from different flower to different flower, which is why they've been industrialized. Because they are guaranteed to cross-pollinate your orchard. Because they won't fly off anywhere else. They'll go from one almond tree to the next almond tree, carrying so the pollen. Right. What you're talking about then are those white uh, boxes that are the hives that are created with those sliding uh, shelves, if you will, or, or actually vertical frames, frames yeah. Uh, yeah. that the uh, bees create the uh, honeycomb in order to deposit the honey in. Uh, first of all, let's, let's, uh, let's start with uh, what the honeybee, because that's kind of what, that's what we're focusing on here, of course. The yes, bees. let's do that. Uh, let's talk about the various things from the very beginning that the bee creates. Uh, now, the first thing that the, that the uh, oh my goodness, I can't even think of uh, swarm, that the swarm, right. must, that, it, I'm sorry? Let's start there with the swarm. The, swarm. the first thing they have to do is they have to find a place to build the hive. What? The yes. honeycomb. Okay. What is what is the criterion, as far as you're aware of, that they consider uh, to um, to construct the honeycomb? Great question. The first one, of course, is that it should be interior to something, maybe preferably a tree, mm -hmm. a hollow in a tree, which is where one of the problems we have is that all the dead trees get um, cut down because of uh, forestry practices that consider them unsafe for tinder. So then the woodpeckers and the owls don't have nesting places. And then after that, the bees also in the wild don't have places to go. So they might find a, a crack in the eave of your house and go up into the attic, for example, where they need a dry space. They also need a fairly confined space, but one with enough of a, of a room inside to be able to hang their comb from. And that comb is usually hung in horizontally and then it comes down in this catenary curve. It's absolutely beautiful. And what they, the, the priorities would be safe from high wind, dry, and able to be protected. So the entrance shouldn't be too big. Partly because the wind could come in, but partly because the bees can't protect a large entrance. They would then be um, instinctively concerned about bear, for example, putting in a paw and pulling out the grubs, which is what bears want most, is the young grubs. So they want a safe space and they want one that's not on the ground. They want one up in a tree. They're not ground dwelling creatures like the, some of the wild bees. Mm -hmm. So they need a little bit of height. 
Okay. All right. And so, if, so if you have, yeah. <laughs> So, so I don't go to my real estate agent and say, look, I, uh, I need to build a, a honeycomb and I need, this is the criterion here. He's not going to help me very much. Uh, and I also know too that uh, in some instances, realtors, uh, real estate agents, and even homeowners too, uh, they'll find these uh, hives, uh, maybe in their attic, uh, maybe under their eaves. We have very large eaves on the house that we're living in at this time. Uh, I mean, we're talking probably four to six feet out from the main house. So these are rather large. And we've actually found uh, uh, a wasp or hornet's uh, little nest made out of mud and what have you, which we were very careful in removing. Um, and did it slowly, did it at night, uh, and so forth. But as far as a beehive, uh, unless there is a, some structural issue, I would think, you really wouldn't want to move it and, and because they are obviously there because there are some plants that they are, shall we say, uh, using or servicing or what have you. Um, so that's, is, is that another criterion for uh, building a hive or does that matter because obviously they can fly? And speaking of which, I've always heard it said that from an engineering standpoint, they shouldn't be able to but they do. That's right. It's they're, they're, they're really extraordinary creatures. I mean, just like all other creatures on this planet, everybody needs a home and food. Mm -hmm. Food and shelter are the biggest issues in all creatures' life on this planet. Even if you're a fish in the sea, you need a nook that you can rest in or hide in from the bigger fish in the sea and so forth. And the bees need a place to, to build their comb. They also need it, as you just wisely said, fairly close to enough um, flowering vegetation to feed themselves. And feeding themselves means that they collect nectar, which they will turn into honey after they've built the comb, which produces, gives them the cells to put the nectar into. And then they collect pollen, which is the protein, and they'll mix that pollen with the nectar to make what we call bee bread. And that's how they rear the young. The grubs are fed a mixture of pollen and nectar, the bee bread, until they fill their cell and then that's capped off. And then they go through their transformation in that cell and become little bees having been hatched in there by the queen as an egg. So when we go back to the initial issue of swarming, what happens is that the queen has left the, the hive with probably 20, maybe 30,000 of the bees that were in it. And she's left behind some queen um, eggs in special sacks that's shaped correctly for a queen to develop in. She's left behind lots of grubs or brood, as we would call it. She's left behind racks of a comb of honey and bee bread. She's left behind an entire little setup, complete with bees to keep it going while the new queen hatches up. So she, they, they're extraordinary. No human parent actually says to their teenager, Okay, here's the house, the fridge is full, 
Everything you need is here. Here's a bank account. Don't worry about a thing. We'll leave now. We, it's completely opposite to the way we think. The queen leaves with all of these bees and simply flies out one day and hangs on some nearby tree. And then all the bees cluster around the queen. Bees are very, very rarely going to sting you when they're swarming. You can walk through a swarm and not be harmed because they're protecting the queen and they are intent on this very short window of time that they've got before they need to start building comb so that they can go get the nectar, get the pollen, get it in the comb, start creating the stores that they need so that the queen can start laying the eggs and they can start making this whole new colony inside whatever cavity they find, which we call a hive. If a beekeeper comes along and finds that swarm, sometimes they just pop it in a bucket, you snap the twig it's on, make it drop into a bucket or something, make sure you've got the queen in there, and then take it to a hive and basically pour the bees in like water. And you'll know if the queen is in there because some of the bees will come to the entrance of the hive and stick their butts up in the air. And that's what the guard bees do. They won't guard the hive if there's no queen. Wow. So you tell by the behavior of the bees whether you've got the queen and then if any bees are left out and you're not far away, they'll find her. But the thing is that the, the, the bees themselves we express as a colony and the house they live in is the hive, whether that's inside a tree or in your backyard personal hive. And they are not uh, difficult to care for. If you have, let's just say um, you have these, these uh, um, uh, boxes, these, these white square boxes, the hives, uh, to, to allow the bees. You have to keep adding to that over the course of time. Uh, otherwise, will the bees eventually, when all of the hives are filled, all of those trays, uh, frames are filled, will they move on? Well, what you're talking about, the, the industrial hive. Right, right. It's called a Langstroth hive, and it was invented in... 1851 by a man called Langstrom. And it's totally oriented towards the pleasure of people. It's not oriented to the kindness of bees. Okay. It's for industrial honey making. And so what happens is people, you, you put these frames in and the frames are filled with um, pre-pressed honey uh, comb. It's actually not wax it's got chemicals in it that are not healthy for the bees the size of the comb is not exactly what a bee would build so you're, you're changing the, the whole biology of the bee by making it fit these industrially pressed comb that you put in, in a square hive there's no catenary curve there's no grace there's no freedom the bees don't get to wax out, which is what they do. They produce wax from their little chests. 
what happens to the bee system, their glandular system, when they can't wax out? We have to ask this question. And the reason these hives are, are used is because it's convenient. And this word convenient is what is so um, destructive to our entire relationship to this earth right now. And the bees were really what we call the canary in the mine when they started collapsing 14 years ago. So when you take a Langstroth hive, a regular box hive, which are often painted white, you can stack them. Very convenient. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can put what they call a queen excluder between two stacks, which means that the queen, who is very big, can't actually get up to that stack. Only the worker bees can get up there. So the only thing that's going to happen up there is they're going to put honey storage up there, which you can then conveniently come along and take away. So, so it's all about control okay. and so all about money. When somebody said to me uh, some time ago that they were a vegan and that mm -hmm. they didn't even eat honey mm -hmm. because it was uh, produced through slave labor, that was what they were talking about. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Are there – are designed in this way – Again, we're going to be talking about more industrial, what have you, methods. But are there hives that have been designed, aside from this square box, that are more conducive to the way in which bees would uh, do this? Or should we just stop harvesting honey, period, and, and leave it be? And then what's going to happen to that hive and the honey if, if, if it's not harvested, if it's not, uh, I, I mean, after the hive is full? Okay, so there's a few parts to that question. Yeah. <laughs> the first part would be with the, with the box hive and the idea that a vegan wouldn't take honey because the, the bees are slaves to the industrial beekeeper. It's a very... Um, appropriate phrase because the industrial beekeeper will actually have thousands of these hives thousands okay. and put them on 18 wheeler trucks and cross America from coast to coast put them in the almond orchards in California which are miles hundreds of miles long totally unnatural in the California Valley requiring great deal of water, which makes other aspects of the environment suffer. These bees are put in the orchard at the time of flowering. And sometimes the flowering of the trees is also treated with chemicals while the bees are there. The bees, after they've done their job, thank you very much, are packed back up on an 18-wheeler, taken across country to the uh, industrial bee compound. The honey is taken out and um, spun into in the, for the marketplace. The bees um, don't always do well, so they split hives up, and they'll go like, oh, this one's not doing well, we'll take these out. 
we'll put these this buns are doing over there. So they'll pick up a a, a, a frame of, of bees and put it into a different hive where they have no relationship to this queen. And they just jiggle things around until they can keep going with their numbers. In order to um, keep the queen producing enough eggs to maintain a thriving hive, they also breed queens, which is an entirely unnatural and unholy occupation. And Rudolf Steiner, who talked greatly about bees in the 1920s, warned us then that if the practice of replacing queens for industrial hive purposes didn't stop, we would lose our bees in a hundred years. That was a hundred years ago. Mm. So some prophecies are coming true. Yeah. But your question about a different design is a good one. Yes, in Africa, they will always use these top bar hives, which are not really industrial but they work very well and they're still used and they protect, protect a great deal of crops because believe it or not, elephants are afraid of bees. And so oh, where wow. elephants, yeah, I guess they must get up their trunk or in their ears or something. Mm-hmm. But um, so where the crops are threatened by the elephants who munch away on all kinds of vegetation and the people put up these top bar hives. In my own book, which you've mentioned kindly, I have designed with the bees in conversation and meditation and just learning from them another top bar hive which utilizes the sacred geometry of the honeycomb. So it's made with the same kind of dimensions that the bees themselves work with. Mm. Other people have created other hives. There's um, a sun hive out of England which is very beautiful. It's woven out of... um, willow or some kind of um, basketry but it's not really rainproof I don't think I'm not sure about that but it's certainly lovely and there are other versions of the hives many of which do well but not great when you say that the honeybees are easy to look after because of the Langstroth hive you could just pick up the box and add another one and do all of that then what we're talking about is the same way that um, in our modern society, we, we like to stack things. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have container ships with cargo that's stackable, that goes on a truck that travels with stackable things. And everything's related to the square or the um, oblong is all with lots of corners and you can just pack one on top of the other, which of course is what the Langstrom hive does. But with the top bar hive, we don't do that and we don't put in the pressed comb. We just put a solid bars one after the other across the top of the hive that is then angled in so that the bees can create their own natural catenary curve, wax out from their chests and build their own comb, which is exquisitely beautiful. Pure white most of the time to begin with. And it yellows as the honey comes in and the nectar. And then when it gets old, it gets dark. And mm-hmm. the kind bee people will replace that far. Yeah. But they don't take a lot of work if you aren't keeping them as slaves. Right. So let me ask out in nature, out in the wild, 
Mm. There are honeybees, wild honeybees. And well, they, yes. All right. And they go through this process. Yes. Of finding a place to build a, a, a cone, honeycomb. Yes. And they begin that process. They build it. Now they go out into the world and they look for plants that they can, uh, they can feed from, get the nectar and so forth and the pollen. And they bring it back to the hive and they do their thing and they make the honey and the propolis and the bee bread and all of the different elements that make up the hive for the colony. Yes. What happens when that hive gets full? Swarm. When the, when the beehive gets full, the when swarm... When the beehive gets full, the, bee, the queen will swarm. So oh. the half of the bees leave, leaving behind a new queen in her little cell still growing, leaving behind enough honey to keep everybody going leaving behind enough grubs to come on within the next few weeks to replace the bees that will then go out to forage. And basically, that's the only way a bee, a honeybee, propagates. In a beehive of honeybees, we see this as a superorganism. There's what we call one bee. It has thousands of moving parts which we call bees. But actually, the whole colony is one creature. When the hive is full, in the way you described so well, what happens is you basically get a split and the hive divides into two. The reigning queen leaves, leaving the new queen to take over, but that actual honeycomb home, there is no reason for it to ever die. It could be eternal. So it sort of becomes self-sustaining. They, they consume the honey, they use it in some fashion and all of the other byproducts? That's what they live on. Okay, okay. So we are actually taking from them, whether it be industrial or otherwise, we're actually taking from them their food. Exactly. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I love honey, but I have a whole new, not only respect for the honeybee, but now I'm sitting here going, even if it wasn't industrial, it would be like someone coming into my home and getting into my pantry. That's exactly what you're doing. That's really well put, Richard. It's exactly right. And that's a little unnerving. Uh, you know, they, they, it's been said time and time again, especially when talking about children learning about uh, uh, growing of the foods that we eat, that they need to know where their food is coming from, uh, whether it be a chicken, a cow, milk, fruits and vegetables, honey, yeah. whatever it is. And it's like, okay, the milk is usually for the calf when you're talking about a cow. And yet we're taking and we've mass produced and now industrialized the whole milk industry by forcing cows to continually produce milk, even though they're not having calves. We sort of keep them in that post-pregnancy phase. Uh, whereas a human being, a human woman, she has a child, she, she produces breast milk for a period of time. And when that child is uh, old enough to start eating other things, the breast milk eventually stops being produced. Precisely. But in the case of the cow, it never stops. 
Yeah, and because of that, the life of a cow is seriously depleted, the lifespan. Cows could normally live about 20 years, but these days in a dairy farm, you'll be lucky to get four or five. Wow. This, uh, you know, I I love the bee. I love honey. I love the the whole aspect of it. And yet now I'm just sitting here going, this was going to be a really uplifting program. And somehow it's just turned on me a little. But what I want to dive into more is the... the, uh, Can I say something there? Go ahead, please. (laughs) For me, it is uplifting that you understand that. Yeah. Because if everybody suddenly goes like, wow, you know, there's no corner store in America that doesn't have some kind of honey. How can that be? Hmm. When people see bees, they think honey. We think, oh, what's in it for me? Hmm. We don't realize that's what we're thinking, but that's how we think. I want milk. I expect the supermarket to have full shelves of milk every week so that whenever I happen to go in, it's available to me. This is how we are taught to be for the last particularly 70 years since the 50s and the onslaught of advertising through television and now through all kinds of media that says, you know, hey, have your Weetabix and milk in the morning and you'll be strong. And have your, and all of this stuff, and it's all an absolute lie. You know, there was a scientist back in the 1920s or 30s, I can't remember the exact year, uh, in India. Uh, and it was written about by uh, Paramahansa Yogananda. And the mm-hmm. scientist's name was Chagadish Chandra Bose. Mm-hmm. And he developed what is called the crescograph. And it is designed to measure the turgor pressure, or in human terms, the blood pressure mm-hmm. of plants. Oh, and yeah, he, he began to do experiments on these plants by using chloroform. And he would uh, move, put chloroform right next to the plant and the turgor pressure would go down, 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 almost to non-existent. And he'd take the chloroform away, and the turgor pressure would come up, 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 up. And through other experiments, he determined that these plants were living, not, not just in the terms of what we think of in a garden, I'll go, you, got, you, you can pick live food and take it in, but that they, they had... I don't know that he went so far as to say they had consciousness, but that they could experience certain um, sensations, if you will. And so I, I, I awareness. Uh, th- there's awareness. And so I got to wondering, I uh, thinking, okay, uh, I understand about the animals, all mm-hmm. right, these now, the insects, the birds. Uh, the fish, I, I get, I get all of that, and uh, I understand why a vegan, one who wouldn't eat probably most of those things, um, would still eat plants. And then when I read this about the the turgor pressure and the awareness of plants, I'm going, you can't eat plants either because they're alive; they have an awareness. So now, what are we going to eat? And this is 
this is sort of the dilemma that we have. And maybe it's not so much of a dilemma because you've sort of talked about the difference between industrial beekeeping and just uh, in maybe individual beekeeping using some of these other forms of um, a honey collection. Again, that's still their food. That, that's, and that's, that's where the dilemma comes in. It's like, okay, how do I justify, how do I justify this act of taking what is theirs? Rubbery. Rubbery. That's what it is. So, so. But, 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 one of the things that can be done here is um, in the spring when the hive is busting and the honey is coming in and before a swarm, most of us who are tending bees in a kinder way mm -hmm. feel perfectly okay about taking the last rack of honey and putting in a clean bar, which they will simply build comb on and put more honey in and saying that's enough for my household. Thank you. And we might do it one more time, maybe in July, but we would never take honey after that. You don't take honey from a hive in October because the hive is building up the winter stores. Right. So at the most, I would take out two bars of honey a year. And I wouldn't put it through centrifuge, you can't with top bars anyway, they don't fit that kind of industrial machinery. You just put it in as pure honeycomb into jars or boxes, and you keep it for medicinal purposes. Mm -hmm. So if you get um, burns, or if you have a cold, or if you're, something is needing honey as a medicine, you have it. But you don't use honey as a honey and toast for breakfast. You use it with great respect and little, but you use it in the same way. Yeah. Everything on this planet exists because it eats something else on this planet. Mm -hmm. We you know, have to eat. Yeah, there, there's an interesting paradox people are unaware. You talk about you know, we talk about, you know, knowing where our food comes from. Well, um, and, and everything, not only, you know, one thing eats another, eats another, eats another, but everything has a byproduct, right? Uh, whether, whether it's excreted or it's created. For example, spiders, they create that, I don't know what it's called, but it's what they use to make the web, okay? It's the webbing. Silk. Yeah. The silk, all right? Uh, and, and that's obviously created through the consuming of other in, smaller insects and so on and so forth. I don't, again, I don't know. I'm not an entomologist, so I don't know the, all the details. But the, the, the point is, when you start thinking about that in the context of what we consume or even what we breathe in, okay, mm -hmm. plants, trees, shrubs, whatever you want to call them, anything that, that it, it takes in carbon dioxide, all right? And it's, it's byproduct or even, you could even call it its waste product because mm -hmm. we consume stuff and then we, we have waste, right? In addition yes. to, of course, running the machine that we, we live in. Yes. All right, so we're breathing in the waste byproduct of plants, 
okay? Well, we're symbiotic. Yeah. The word here is symbiosis. Yeah, exactly. We need them and they need us. Exactly. So this has been a very, this is very enlightening, I think, for, for many of us, in, including myself. I mean, I, you know, we have chickens, for example. And uh, I remember uh, time and time again, people would ask, when the chickens get too old to lay eggs, will you eat them? And we said, no, of course not. We would never do that. Not because we've, we've personalized it and we've made them our pets. No, because we wouldn't do that. You know, the girls give their all. That's what we call them, our girls. When they give their all to create a, a, an egg, all right, which is mm -hmm. I learned many, uh, a few years ago uh, by a gentleman who used to, uh, who used to um, uh, um, uh, prepare hens, you know, for eating. He said that he cut one open once and he saw the factory. And the factory was a series of graduated size eggs inside the hen. Wow. They don't create one egg at a time. They're constantly creating them. They're all different sizes. And then, of course, the largest one pops out and makes room for the next one as it's finished its process. But at the front end of the line, it's just this tiny little thing. Mm. And that's, that's how they produce eggs. And we are so grateful. We are always, I, every time I go in to, to gather up eggs in the evening, one of the girls may be sitting on one of the eggs. And, and I'll say, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, I need to take this. Because first of all, it's not fertilized. So it's not going to hatch and grow into a chick that you can take care of. Um, you know, but I thank you so much for your contribution to our, to our household, you know, because not only do we eat them, every so often my wife will cook one up for the dog. Now the right. cat's not interested, but right. um, they're interested in the chickens, <laughs> but not in the... Um, I asked you this though. Yes. Do you eat, do you buy chicken to eat? We, we do, and we do our best to buy organic. Mm-hmm. And we don't tell the girls that that's what we do. <laughs> we yeah. don't so, it is about, it, so it is about your personal relationship. Actually. It is. It absolutely is. And it's about it's, respect and gratitude, it sounds yes. like. Oh, absolutely. And right. I'm, I'm even, I, even am, I feel the same way, even though they don't produce anything other than love, which is a major thing. I, I do the same thing with the dog and our cats and the bees. And even the rodents that, unfortunately, we have to find ways, we do not use chemicals or poisons, I, you know, let people know that, uh, to keep them away from the chickens and their feed and their water, to keep them out of the house, out of the walls. But, you know, we're not 100% successful. But I also say, you know, if they're there, first of all, there's nothing I can do about it. I'm not going to break into the wall to try to get rid of them. And I'm not putting anything in the wall to try to get rid of them. But what I'm going to acknowledge is that we live in the wilderness, that we do. We live up in a rural area of California, of Santa Barbara, above Santa Barbara, in the, in the forest area. And uh, that's where we live. And we have coyotes, and we have foxes and squirrels, and we have a family of five deer, a mama and four young ones. Oh, and this has been over the last two or three years that they've been producing, which means there's a buck around somewhere who is mm -hmm. facilitating this, this family growth. And yeah. we just think it's fabulous every time they come around the house and we just sit quietly and we just watch them. And my wife talks to them. Right. Um, so this we is have- This symbiosis. You see, this is it. 
there are people that go out into this kind of a landscape and will, you know, clear cut a space to put their house in and make it immaculate and have it landscaped and put a, you know, a, 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 a proper road, so to speak, up to their garage and have it all sanitary so that they could look out over there at these things but not have it come close. Yeah. And that's not symbiosis. You're trying to live symbiotically within the landscape, mm -hmm. even though as a human, you don't really belong there. No. But because you're living symbiotically, everybody's making room for you. But then you have to ask the question, if where I'm living, and again, I, I take your point here, but if I and others like me are living in a space where we don't belong, the next question would be, then where do we belong? Where should we be living? And that, well, to me, is a that, tough question. It is, and I've had that same question myself. I don't think I should have really said that you don't belong there. I think the thing is, it's not so much where we live, it's how we live there. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I mean, the Native American people, I have so much respect for um, Chief Seattle and his speech or his letter to, um, I guess it was King George or somebody that decided they wanted the red man's land. And his speech to, to them about, you know, how can I sell you the air? You don't understand this land because our ancestors are here. We know every nook and cranny. We respect every nook and cranny. We know the ways of the wild ones. We live with them. And this kind of thinking is really being diminished by our modern industrial thinking that says everything is up for grabs let's get as much as we can let's make it into monocultures let's be savvy and put everything in boxes and stack it and let's get as much as we can to market and everybody should really actually earn more this year than they did last year and don't worry just eat as much as you want because the feast is endless this thinking is what's causing climate crisis. Yeah. Well, and, and I, I often hear that philosophy responded to uh, by people who say, oh, we can't do that. Here in California, for example, the governor of California just signed a, a bill basically uh, saying that uh, this state is going to have... Uh, uh, all electric vehicles in the state by, I think it's uh, 2030 or 35, something like that, uh, 15 years from then, roughly. I think that's, I, I believe that's correct. I, I, you know, if I'm not correct, I, I don't want to be held to that. But anyway, there, there are these inroads that are being made and that we want to stop uh, the drilling of petroleum because, you know, it, it's not helping, it's hurting and so on and so forth. And then there are those who say, yeah, but you're hurting the economy. You're doing this, you're doing that, you're doing the other. And uh, the science is flawed as far as climate change is concerned. It's, it's junk science and on, and the list goes on. And this debate has been going on for actually for 50 or 60 years because- Same time, the, since the 50s. Yeah, the because, because, yeah, because 
I heard uh, there was a lawsuit filed against the federal government because they refused to do anything. And this is recently, probably in the last five to seven years. And they used the government's own evidence against them mm -hmm. from the 50s forward. Every administration has said through science scientists who they brought together, who mm -hmm. were saying that we need to do something, uh, as I've often said, I'll set climate change aside. We need to clean up our house, period. And they've yeah. been saying that every decade in yeah. every administration. And the law yes. is using that information to say, so you've been you saying this, but you've been doing nothing. Why, uh, do you say again? why do you think nothing changes? Nothing changes because the mentality that's within the governments and, uh, uh, and, and so forth uh, are more interested in the economy. The economy is more important than the environment. Well, let's take that one step further. Sure. What we're saying is that the corporations mm -hmm. that lobby the government and whose bosses frequently go through the revolving door into the government departments, such as the EPA and the Interior Ministries and so forth. And so we have the fox in the hen house issue. Yeah. They're always the corporate structure that has taken over the global economy is run on the basis of increased profit. And every single conversation that comes out, even during this COVID epidemic, the crisis is the economy. The crisis is that the, the corporations are losing money, that they're not going to be able to increase their profits this year. The expectation of the global paradigm is that every single company should make more money this year than they did last year, which means that they are going to need more of the natural resources of this world to do that. Yeah. You know, which they are now plate though, Richard. Yeah. Because what they're doing is they're selling us a feast that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if the consumer, such as yourself and myself, simply get savvy about this and say, no, I don't need that much. I don't need all of that. I don't need the latest gizmos. I don't need to drive this far, fly this far, eat this kind of farmed food. I'm not going to do that. I'm satisfied with what I have. As long as you have enough, mm -hmm. we yeah. have the power of the purse. How we spend our money in the supermarket, in the health food store, can grind this to a halt mm -hmm. if we leave the feast. Well, and that in and of itself is difficult for a lot of people because they don't want to change their lifestyle. That's right. So they'd rather ignore the effects. And this is the problem of not thinking through consequences. Yeah, yeah. 
We're talking today about, <laughs> we've kind of got a <laughs> far afield here, but we're talking with Sky Taylor, author of A Monk in the Beehive. It's a short discourse on, short discourse on bees, monks, and sacred geometry. Let's talk about, uh, there are a couple of the questions I want to ask about bees before we go, because uh, I want to talk about the aspect of the monk in the beehive. Okay. Um, first of all, give us the hierarchy of the colony. We know there's the, as far as I know, there's the, the queen and yeah. the drones. But, I, but you've already described a couple of other levels there. So give us the hierarchy. So the queen bee. Without a queen, there's no colony. Okay. She's the center of the whole thing. And her chemistry, her pheromones, are individual to each queen bee. And every bee in her colony is imprinted with that, which is how come they know where home base is. In the beehive, the work is done by the female bees, called the work bees, who are sterile. The only fertile female is the queen. The drones are fertile. And most people think that they're only good for the nuptial flight when the new queen goes up into the sky towards the sun to mate with drones from her own hive or other hives, because they cluster together and then come back to the hive and start producing eggs. We'll come back to the drones in a second. The queen produces between 1,200 and 1,800 eggs a day. Wow. Moving in a continuous spiral, which is rather like the nautical shell, this lovely geometric dance. And she's attended by um, particular bees, the, the queen attendants. And so they groom her, they stroke her, they feed her royal jelly from glands in their heads, very particular food. And um, it's, I don't know, I don't, I hate to think how royal jelly gets to market, but it does. There's one queen in a hive. Mm -hmm. She usually has six to eight maidens who produce royal jelly for her. She'll lay all of these thousands of eggs. There'll be half the bees, the first three weeks of a bee's life after it hatches out, after being an egg and then a grub being fed on the bee bread, it takes three weeks for a bee to become a bee after the egg is laid. The first thing they do is they turn right around and clean out the cell they just come out of, and then they start doing cleanup jobs around the hive. And they learn their way around the hive doing all kinds of things. And then after three weeks, they start to go outside the hive, and the drones will give them an orientation flight somewhere between three and four o'clock in the afternoon. And they'll fly around the hive so they kind of know where home base is. And the very next day, they'll start going out to the harvest to bring in pollen and not nectar. And they'll do that for three weeks. So now they've had three weeks from egg to, to birth as a bee, three weeks inside the hive. They'll work outside the hive for three weeks. And then they'll simply drop dead from exhaustion. This is cell death in the colony of great bee, one bee. This is like a cell of your body dying and it will be replaced by the next bee because the queen keeps laying 
12 to 1800 eggs a day. It's self-generous. So it's not sort of like a sadness because one bee died. It's like, that's normal. It's like your own body sheds cells and reproduces cells. Your entire body system is replaced something like every eight months. So the, the girls last, they live about nine weeks. The drones tend to live about four months and they cluster up in the, they go up in the air. They don't go out to the field. They, they, they hang up at some altitude and drones from different heights gang together and just hang out there like boys in the hood. And my thesis is that um, they're barometers for the hive. They're checking the wind shear, they're checking the incoming weather. And a lot of beekeepers in the industrial world will um, chuck out the, bee, the, the uh, comb that is built for drones because they need bigger cells. And they don't allow the drones. So then the hive doesn't know when the storm comes in or when the temperature's going to drop because they don't have their barometric reading coming in when the drones come back into the hive. Mm -hmm. This is my own personal presentation of the drone. Mm -hmm. So, and then the queen herself, if she's not manipulated, it can actually last eight years. So she could swarm every year for eight years. And she has only ever mated once. Those are the three characters, so to speak, within the colony of the hive. Okay. Now, the second question is, tell us in terms of the, the, the tell us about the various elements of the honeycomb, the hive. We know about the honey, we know about the, the pollen, and the royal jelly. Uh, what, else, what else is contained within the hive that humans have found uses for? And do it in a humane way, as you've described, for example, honey, just take the comb, put it in a jar and so forth, and for medicinal purposes, you wouldn't put it on your toast, I understand that. Uh, what are some of the uh, various elements within the hive? Well, the other part of the hive, there's, there's, there's the area where the queen lays the eggs. So the cells that are built there are slightly smaller for the cells that are going to produce the worker bees, the girls. And the cells that are built for the drones are slightly bigger. So in a natural hive, the, the bees will do this. They'll make size, different sized cells. When the queen will, will lay these uh, the eggs within the center of each of these catenary curves, usually, not in the whole thing. And around the edge will be the honey and the bee pollen so that the, the food for the grubs is close to where the grubs are. And these bars of where the grubs are is called the brood nest. Now, fishermen will come in and take out a bar of brood because they could put it on their fishing line and catch fish because they're fat and juicy grubs. Mm -hmm. If you want to know the human use of these things. Usually the honey itself, the pure honeycombs, the combs that have only got honey and no brood, which is all a beekeeper would ever normally kindly take, 
is towards the back end of the hive, away from the brood nest. And it's brought forward as needed. And it's usually for the worker bees themselves to eat from. They live on honey. The drones also live on honey, but they don't know how to feed themselves. So when they come back into the hive, the worker bees feed the drones from the honey. The honey and pollen together as bee bread is usually stored near the brood nest to feed the grubs. That's all that's going on in there. So let's dive into the the book that you have written here, A Monk in the Beehive. This is again authored by Sky Taylor, available at Amazon. And other, I have my copy. I actually went online and purchased a. Sh it's a short discourse on bees, monks, and sacred geometry. And um, I'm gonna go backwards. The shape of each of the individual compartments in the honeycomb is a particular shape, and they're all shaped the same. They're all except for the queen cell sac. Okay. The queen is going to lay an egg to produce another queen. There's a very particular pendulous cell that is made because queens are very large, much larger than the other bees. Yeah. Otherwise, all the cells in every comb are hexagonal and they fit together absolutely perfectly and they're all slightly tilted upward so that the nectar that's put in them doesn't spill out. So uh, and and I've, I know that we've probably both seen architecture that has been designed to mimic, so to speak, or yeah. have you, the, that hexa, hexa, hexagonal uh, form. Matter of fact, yeah. for those who are looking at the YouTube, here's a, a photograph or a picture inside the book uh, of uh, a beautiful, I, I think it's really cool looking, um, d diagram here. Um, I know this is not the, the honeycomb per se, but nonetheless, it's, it's beautiful. And of course, when you take a look at it. And one other thing, that, another observation, when you start describing all of these different elements, whether it's the hierarchy, whether it's the, what's in the honey, uh, honey uh, uh, the hive in the, in the honeycomb, uh, or the process they go through and so on and so forth. And I'm sitting here going, somebody had to sit there and watch the honeybees in the hive for days, weeks, months, years. Yeah, I, I, do. Know, I think of Jane Goodall and the work that she has done. I don't know how much she did with, with necessarily with honeybees, but somebody had to spend the time, an entomologist had to spend the time, uh, you know, day and night, 24-7, to in order to gather all of this information. And it seems to me, and I've said this before on this program, and I may have asked you this on the last show, um, do you think nature, and in this case, with the conversation about bees, nature and this aspect of the bees is really one of our greatest teachers, if not our greatest teacher in how to be, how to live with nature, how to be, if I may use the phrase, sustainable, so mm -hmm. as to coexist mm -hmm. with nature, mm -hmm. not as many people, especially from a biblical perspective, want to subdue it. You know, we were put here to subjugate and subdue the plants and the animals and so forth and control. And I just don't get that from yeah. well, the sacred texts. Yeah. It's the, 
I think it, we're, we're really looking for is a, is a lifestyle of enough, plenty, but no more. A modesty. Yeah. You know, I, I think about things like, you know, the bees need only a certain amount of space actually to make a hive. And we haven't talked a little bit about propolis, which we should mention. Oh. Because that is what um, gives them their immune system. We'll come back to that. But in terms of your question here, I think we have been diverted. And I think this whole thing with the corporate um, dynamic ruling the economic thrust of our times, the marketplace being so um, dominant, it has um, become usury instead of symbiotic. Yeah. And we've lost our sense that plants have awareness. We've lost our sense that bees are sacred. We've lost our sense of awe. Mm -hmm. And we've stopped looking for beauty. Yeah. And in this change away from a symbiotic and natural way of life, we are compromising our own life force, our own ability to become whole and to um, our inner light diminishes, our spirit fades a little. We have sicknesses that are rampant in our society that didn't exist a hundred years ago. True, true enough. You know, it's interesting how um, setting the, the uh, COVID uh, issue behind us or uh, setting it aside for just a moment. Um, we um, have an immune system of our own. And you brought up the subject of the propolis uh, or propolis, however you want to pronounce it, where you want to put the accent, that is used by the bees for their immune systems. Yes. And... One of the things that I have been doing now over the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years, I'm now 60, and some would say, boy, you're awfully proud of that. Well, I kind of am, uh, because I've had some relatives who didn't make it to 60, uh, and yeah. um, I plan to make it to 100. Good but I believe that if my immune system is fortified, by eating green leafy vegetables and those kinds of things and living plants and, and fruits and, and, and so forth and trying to stay with primarily organic things. Although yeah. my, my feeling is, and we had a situation here in Santa Barbara on the South Coast uh, where this was, uh, my, my premise was uh, laid to bear true. Uh, you can slap a label on anything, call it whatever you want, and uh, it it'll probably and it could be just garbage. But exactly. trying to trying to stay with organics, buying locally, buying from the local farmers because the local farmers are not using chemicals in the same way as the industrial farms. We're talking small farmers, 
you know, maybe a few hundred acres, if that, that kind of thing. Anyway, uh, so if I fortify my immune system, I am going to ignore the messages that I get on my medical uh, app uh, that tells me it's time for your flu shot. I haven't had a flu shot in 40 years. I've never had one. You know, and I, I may have had one earlier than that uh, when I was still living with my parents as a child and a teenager. But as an adult, I can't remember the last time I had one. And it's got to be at least 40 years or if not longer. And I've been exposed to it, I'm sure. Well, I also believe though I also acknowledge the dangerousness to many of our citizens around the world of this coronavirus or COVID-19, it is dangerous. Yes. And yes, it is possible if your immune system has been strengthened and you don't have a bunch of underlying conditions. I only have one, and that would be high blood pressure, but I'm taking care of that. I used to be uh, type 2 diabetic back in July. But I've got my numbers right down where they were before the pandemic. And the only reason I had type 2 diabetes was because we started buying comfort foods that had all the sugar and the the carbs and all of that stuff, you know? Uh, As the saying goes, shop at the ends of the store, not in the middle. (laughs) That's a good saying. I like that. So if we do that, we can pretty much withstand the onslaught of just about not everything but just about anything that comes along and they say that there are thousands if not millions of different viruses and bacteria that are out there Mm -hmm. that we aren't even aware of because our immune systems take care of it right um so it seems to me that we have a lot to learn from the bees well, in the hive, because one bee is only one cell, and the colony in its entirety, with all the many thousands of hives, is one being, what they do is they make propolis from the sap of tree bark and some of the flowering things, I'm thinking particularly of things like magnolia that have sap and stuff like that, but they'll find whatever they need locally and they'll mastigate it and make it into, in this sort of alchemical way, into this propolis and they seal the hive with it. But every bar, if you put a top bar hive out in your garden, next time, and you've got bees in it, the next time you open the lid, every bar will be sealed down. You'll have to break the seal of propolis to lift the bar up. Every crack, if you don't make a perfect hive, and there's a tiny, tiny little air cap, that they'll close it. We had one incident once in, in upstate New York when I first started using or building these hives, when there was extraordinary moment where the bees came out of this hive completely close to the entrance and all the windows, as we call them, or the airflow units, they totally closed the whole place up in one day with propolis. And the next day, there was a massive corona mass ejection from the sun. After that had passed, they opened up the hive again. This is a bee colony that lives in a condition that makes them 
respond to nature, just like your plant man in India noticed the plants responding to the chlorophyll. They're in tune with what's happening. They probably had a healthy bunch of drones there. But their, propol their propolis is external to the comb. It's not in the comb, it's not in the honey, it's not in the bees. So they provide their own immune system external and propolis is antiviral, antibacterial, and antifungal. Wow, that's extraordinary that we have something that's available to us in, in the ways in which you have harvest the, harvested uh, this, this incredible uh, plethora of, um, I, 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 I hesitate to use the word byproducts of the bees, um, products, products. products of the bees that that if we are respectful and so forth we could we can utilize those just like we can utilize the various herbs and various different plants i mean right. i i i produce a program call uh, that uh, deals with gardening and one of the things that they talk about on a regular basis in terms of protecting your uh, garden plants, the foods that you're growing from insects and what have you, is to grow magnolias around the garden because mm -hmm. they're mm -hmm. natural, if you will, pesticide mm -hmm. uh, or anti-bug <laughs> anti kind of thing. If you've got the right climate. Nasturtium does that too. Nasturtium. All right. There's another one that we know about. What about the monk? Tell us about the monk in this, uh, in this uh, discourse. Mm -hmm. Well, I was the monk. I'm a monk. <laughs> <laughs> so we've been getting a first-hand uh, uh, education here from the monk, you, in the garden. <laughs> the thing I like about this, um, when I was standing day by day and often night by night and learning to get closer to the hive and watching what happened without opening the hives, is watching the bees, watching the the drones, how they fly differently, how improbable the whole thing is, how beautiful it all is. It really took me back to my days in the Zen monastery. I used to live at San Francisco Zen Center. And I spent um, a season down at Tassajara, which you may know about. And then I ended up at Green Gulch Farm in Marin County, where I worked in the garden and learned to bring this stillness to the presence of the garden, and later to the bees. And this stillness that's required for understanding what's happening, very much like the Native Americans would teach us to be still at the edge of the river and to become one with the landscape so that the landscape reveals herself to you. The deer appears, the fish don't get flustered, the birds land close. This is because we become still and at one with our landscape. And I learned this in the monastery, in what we call silent sitting, that the style of Zen practice is called Zazen, and it means serene reflection. And so when we learn to become still, when we live in a simple room, we get fed simple food. We do the work that is required to maintain the monastery, whether it's in the garden or the kitchen or in the meditation hall or the plumbing. 
when we just do these things because that's what we're doing rather than doing them on the way to doing something else, something better, or doing them with any resentment. If we just remove our sense of what about me and enter the activity, whether it's silent sitting or making a beehive, something happens to shift our perception that allows us to meet beauty. And when you meet beauty, everything changes. Yeah. You know, we had an experience on the hill just recently uh, where uh, we have this, we have these two beautiful oak trees uh, that are actually mm. within the yard that I created only by putting up a fence. When you're out in the wilderness, it's kind of hard to call this space uh, out your quote unquote back door of your cottage, your backyard when you're, when you're out in the wilderness. But anyway, it, they're, they're enormous. And of course, they are right next to uh, our septic system with leech line. So we know that it's getting plenty of water. Mm -hmm. And we came home the other, uh, the other day. We went into the backyard because we're in the process of building a greenhouse. I'm, I'm, I'm mm -hmm. uh, turning the soil to, to level it out so we can put down pavers, uh, stone pavers on top of that to build the greenhouse on top of, to give it a good foundation. And also nice. I looked over at this giant oak tree and one of the limbs, and this is an enormous limb, 20, 30 feet long, had mm -hmm. broken off the trunk and crushed the fence. And of course I had, to, I had to go through the process of cutting it up to get it off the fence and fix the fence mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And right now everything is just laying because the weather's not been conducive to, to doing much. It's been a little too warm. But number one, there's going to be some firewood, certainly. Right. The, the, the biggest thing for me is how, you, I don't know if you have these in Ireland, but we have these green bins along with the, uh, the amber or brown bins for garbage, blue bins for recycle. We have these green bins for garden waste, as they like to call it. Mm -hmm. I never used them. Good. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking? Because with, with this giant oak tree, over the last 14 years where we've lived, I built this dog run for our dogs. And, um, and everything was low, and I had the barriers and this and that and the other. Well, over the 14 years, the level of dirt has risen by at least six to eight, maybe 10 inches. Wow. That's just from the leaves from the oak tree falling, decaying, and mixing with whatever else is in the microbes. That's and stuff. stuff. That's fantastic stuff yeah. for your garden. You spread it out on your beds. It will be fabulous. Absolutely. Yeah. We, and, and of course, when we, we get the greenhouse built, I'm sure she'll use some of that, you know, in some of the pots or beds or whatever that she's going to have inside there. But it's one of those things where people seem to think and, and I, I used to get on this my high horse about this when I lived in Phoenix, Arizona, which is a desert. And I would see people who created desert landscapes in their front yard because they didn't want to mow the lawn anymore. God, when I was a kid growing up, every, lawn, every yard, front yard and backyard, up and down our street, on both sides of the street, had green grass. It was beautiful. Um, but they put gravel in. They put big rocks. I'm going... 
could you show me someplace out in the wild desert where you see this? There's no gravel. But can you show me someplace out in the wild desert where you see a lawn? Well, that's a good point. That's an excellent And then that's, uh, there's, some, there's some thought there because of xeroscaping is what that's called. Yeah. And it that doesn't use water. That's, that's, that is true. So I understand your point, but there is a side to there. Yeah. But at the same time, a lawn, though does require water, also keeps the area cooler. It does. It keeps it cooler. And so if you have a series of lawns in a neighborhood, in a subdivision, in a city, your city is going to stay cooler. But what has Phoenix done and a lot of other cities? Put in more asphalt and concrete, more pavement, yeah. taking out the trees. Uh, I lived out there. Distressing. And, and exactly. And it just gets worse and worse. But again, that's a, another story for another time. It is a monk in the beehive. We're talking about the monk, Sky, Sky Taylor. Um, and it's a short discourse on bees, monks, and sacred geometry. We didn't talk a lot about sacred geometry. Unfortunately, we're, we're just about out of time. We, do have another time. <laughs> yes, we, will, we will have you back to talk about sacred geometry because, I, like I said at the beginning of the program, I found it so fascinating the Christians were talking about something that I, just by the term, I had never heard of biblically or religiously, but people were talking about it left and right. And uh, I, I knew at that time about computer-generated geometry that, were, that was called a fractal. And I've got a couple of posters at home of mm -hmm. fractals. Oh, they're so cool. They're similar to mm -hmm. that shell you were, that spiral shell in terms of what the queen bee does as far as the eggs are concerned. Uh, just magnificent looking things. I used to have one as my wallpaper on my computer with Windows 3.1. And that's going back quite a number of years. <laughs> that's why I want We're to dating ourselves, Richard. What's that? We're dating ourselves. <laughs> I realize that. But you know what? I don't have a problem with that. That's uh, all right. I've got nearly 10 years on you. Don't you worry. <laughs> I am proud of being 60, and I'll be proud in 10 years of being 70. My dad is 89 and going strong. Mother, 86 and going strong. Uh, I don't know how much longer they're going to be here, but, you know, we've got... It's the quality of life family. we have. It's the quality of life we have. That's it. That's it right there. Absolutely. This has been a quality interview, I have to tell you. This has been a lot of fun. Uh, we've, we've gone a lot of different places, but we've learned a lot from you and the work that you have done. And I encourage people to pick up a copy of A Monk in the Beehive, available on Amazon as well as on your website. Give us the uh, website where people can go to get more information about you and the work you're doing. Thank you. Sky-talk.com. All right. We will be linked as we are with the first interview to your web, website, sky-talk.com. And we hope that you will uh, avail yourselves of the radio broadcast Mondays at, uh, Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Monday mornings at 1 a.m., the podcasts on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM. Also supporting us financially through PayPal and Patreon accounts that are on the homepage as well as the radio shows page. Also participate in 20s, twenty the 2020s, the decade of perfect vision. Please. Spend some time. If, if, you know, if, I have, if I can do this and the bees are still there, I would just maybe stand outside of a safe distance from them, and not because of COVID either, a safe distance from them so that I don't disturb them, and just sit and listen, even close my eyes and just listen 
what a marvelous sound they make. It's just incredible. Take a chair out there. Yeah, take a chair and, and, and oh, just down. folks. And let them move that sound into you. Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's the sound of the planet, folks. I mean, if you want to think about it. But find that still small place. Listen to that still small voice. Get that encouragement, that inspiration, that education, that information uh, during the decade of the 2020s. And uh, we also uh, hope that you will uh, check out the YouTube video of these programs that are available at, uh, at, the, uh, at my channel, which is Richard Dugan. You can type in Richard Dugan, probably tell me your story as well. And uh, you can watch these programs as well. And I thank, uh, I thank you, Sky, for joining us again and giving us so much time. This has just been wonderful. I want to ask you those three questions. I know I asked you last time, but you know, sometimes the answers change. What are the questions? The first oh, by the question. Way, before you ask the questions. Oh, before, I'm going to ask the questions now. Thank you very much. I really get the pleasure of such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Oh, you are very welcome. And you know what? I, I somehow, some way, we are going to take you up. Uh, we, I, I've been wanting to move to. I fully really expect to see you here when we can do that. <laughs> well, I will let you know before we leave, before we take off uh, yeah, from, uh, from LAX. But uh, we've wanted to move there for. Well, since 2003, 2004, when we, when we went there for my wife's birthday, and um, I've wanted to move there ever since, and it's just been, it's just been uh, a great. Um, first of the three questions, before we uh, run out of time here, is who is Sky Ann Lewis Taylor? Sky Ann Louise Taylor. Louise. Sky Taylor. One of many. What is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you're doing now? To help people think differently and to ask deeper questions. Finally, what is your life's purpose? To relieve suffering and the fear of death. We thank you again for joining us here on the program. And again, we look forward to having you back again uh, to talk more about sacred geometry and the, the work that you're doing there and, and get, a, uh, get, a, get an update on how, uh, how things are in Ireland as well. And we thank you for listening to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. And I guess I should say listening and watching uh, on YouTube as well as the podcasts and the broadcast. I'm Richard Dugan, and I thank you again for all that you folks do to uh, change your lives and the lives of the people around you and uh, getting more in touch with uh, the earth, the plants, the animals, uh, and all that, uh, that keeps us going and trying to make it more sustainable. And until our next broadcast, podcast, videocast, love to love.